Welcome to Mindful Social, the show that intersects mindfulness and emotional intelligence with the hectic online world we live in today. Welcome, everybody. I think you're really going to love this week's guest, Maria Ross, author of The Empathy Edge, Harnessing the Value of Compassion as an Engine for Success. Maria shares that what makes people and businesses really successful is not just the most important person in the room, the best concepts, but the teams who have the best soft skills, the best collaboration, empathy, and how we're starting to see more data and proof that soft skills really do make a huge difference in how success happens. Want to hear more about that? Listen up. I'm so happy to have you on the show, Maria. I have loved the book, The Empathy Edge. I think there's so much that people can learn from here. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on why did you write this book? <laughs> the long sorted story of how the Empathy <laughs> Edge came to be. Well, I am a brand strategist by, by trade and that's my wheelhouse. I help companies with their messaging, their brand story and helping them better connect with customers. And there was a confluence of events that happened around the fall of 2016 for me. One was um, the big headline news was there was a presidential election going on and there was no. a lot of bad behavior happening that was really disheartening for a lot of people. Um, and I remember having lots of coffee conversations with colleagues, with clients of I'm feeling all these feelings and I want to make the world a better place and I want to, I want to act on my empathy, but I don't know what to do with that. What do I do within the confines of my job or of my mm. business? I'm just a web designer or I'm just a product manager. I, you know, do I need to go join the Peace Corps? What do I need to do to make the world a better place? Um, in tandem to that, I was starting to get in conversations with my branding clients talking about what they wanted their story to be and what they wanted their impression to be with customers. And empathy was coming up a lot. And they would say, you know, well, we're really empathetic. We want to we want to portray a brand that's empathetic. And working with a lot of tech companies, I'd be like, are you? Are you really? <laughs> you you got a lot of strengths. Let's talk about those. But um, so I just found that you know sort of like, huh, another little dot to connect here. And then also at that time, I had my son was two and a half years old. Um, you know, starting to think about the legacy and the world beyond me mm. and all of these things and thinking, you know, what is it that I could do to make the world a better place for him? So I embarked on this book, which initially was much wider in scope. I was like, I just want to write about how to put empathy in action at work, in relationships and parenting and got wise advice as you probably have in the past from authors about sticking to your wheelhouse. And so lo and behold, I narrowed the focus to the workplace, brand, which, you know, is again, is my wheelhouse, but I can never have a conversation about an authentic brand unless you're talking about what are your leaders like? What is your culture like? What is your mm -hmm. brand like from the inside out? And so it made sense to me to talk about empathy from the leadership culture and then brand levels. And I started doing the research and gathering the data for the skeptics of like, is this really good for business or is it just fluff? And the data is there, the research is there, the case studies are there to prove that it has a host of benefits for business. So that's how the book came to be. And it's been wonderful to spark the conversation, but also, you know, be part of the, the movement that I see happening with more conscious business, more conscious capitalism. 
Yeah, it's so wonderful to see businesses actually thinking about their customers. Golly, what a concept. Shocking, right? right? <laughs> so we should probably clarify something. Um, as you said, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, we're really empathetic. And, you know, yeah, are you empathic or not? Mm -hmm. And so how does one know? Oh, that's a good question. And just side note, because I know, you know, I, I noticed with the terminology, I purposely st stayed away from empathic, even though that's probably more grammatically correct, mm -hmm. because I didn't want to lose my audience. I thought that forced a lot of business people, it was already going to be taking a leap to talk about empathy in the workplace. But to talk about it in terms of being empathic, I felt was too much of a leap for them in terms of what their connotations around that word might be. So too squishy too squishy or too mm -hmm. like, are, do you have ESP? Like what, you know, do you read my mind? What does that mean? Um, and so I think one of the ways it's one of those things where it's like, if you have, if you call, if you're out there calling yourself hip, you're probably not hip, right? Like Apple doesn't right. go out there and go, we're hip. They just are. <laughs> so I find it really interesting when I'm talking to companies and, you know, to their credit, their leaders and their culture might be very empathetic on the inside, but that's not necessarily the image that A, is going to connect them with their customers and B, going to serve them well in terms of the competition or the story that they need to tell. Mm -hmm. So how do you know it? I think when you, when you have a leader that you are, you would go to bat for, you know, that is super loyal, that uh, there's studies that show that uh, people are willing to work more hours and for less pay for empathetic companies. Not that we want to create that trend, but they are willing to sort of go above and beyond for mm -hmm. leaders and for companies that have their best interests at heart. So I define empathy in the book as being able to take another person's perspective or in some cases feel their feelings, not always, but sometimes, and then take action on that information. And that's, it's the action part, right? So we can all feel empathetic about mm -hmm. refugees or about working moms or about take your pick, but what are we doing in terms of our actions as a company, in terms of our policies, our reward structures, accountability, our customer service policies, how are we operationalizing empathy so mm -hmm. that someone from the outside looking in and even from the inside looking out can say, yeah, I can see all these things that are afoot in this organization that show to me that they listen, that they care, that they have people's backs, and that they are not just pushing decisions on people, but they are taking input, even if they have to make a decision that ultimately people don't like, are they doing it in an empathetic manner? Mm -hmm. Okay. So how do you differentiate empathy from compassion? So in my book, this was interesting because I, I did some research on this and there's varying definitions. It's one of those, like, depending on what you like, you can find the definition or the data around it. But um, there were quite a few places where I saw this definition of empathy and the difference between compassion. And it was that empathy is the mindset. It's the feeling. And that's mm -hmm. the perspective I've taken for the book. So you can have it. But again, if you don't act on it, then you're, you're not really being empathetic. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's taking the compassionate act. That's almost the action part of it is the showing compassion. So right. can you show empathy? I don't know. You feel empathy. You mm -hmm. think empathetically, but you can act compassionately. So for me, that's, that's, it's two sides of the same coin. And, you know, to be fair, 
you can act with compassion without necessarily feeling empathy. You could do mm-hmm. something really good that benefits someone and they love you for, but you don't necessarily have that mindset of seeing things through their eyes or taking their perspective, but often those can go hand in hand. And I think that's the power of, especially when you're talking about an organization, having the mindset as a leader and as a culture, and then parlaying that into compassionate action for your employees, for your colleagues, for your customers. That's an excellent answer because I I know there is a lot of confusion over Mm -hmm. things like empathic distress and, you know, how that applies to the workforce. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there are a lot of examples in the workforce of people who are just feeling so much and feeling unable to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's when things get really messy. Yeah, this idea of sort of an empathy paralysis as well, because Mm -hmm. there was research I had in the beginning of the book from more of a social psychology perspective where, um, you know, there is this phenomenon that if it's almost if the problem and the, the issue is so great, you're not actually bringing it down to an individual level, it can cause this sort of empathy paralysis of like, that problem is just so big, I can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I think that hits us in the workplaces as well. Like we look at the organization, especially if you work for a big organization and say like, oh, I'll never be able to change that. This is the way things will always be. And you sort of resign yourself to feeling all these feelings and not being able to put actions behind them. So um, yeah, I think there's definitely a danger there's, there's been, you know, one of the books I found in my research is a book called uh, Against Empathy. And mm-hmm. it's this idea that when you are too emotionally engaged and emotionally charged, you actually tend to be more biased. You tend to act irrationally. You tend to act with the interests of the few in mind versus the interests of the many. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think what we're talking about here is being able to to collectively have that mindset of taking the perspective of your employees and your customers and making decisions based on that. And like I said before, it might not always be the decisions that they quote unquote want, but it's being taken with an empathy lens. And I think mm-hmm. that's the important step that we're missing, that a lot of those decisions are based on anything but empathy. Right, right. Yeah, I, I know, you know, in a lot of corporate, in a, in a lot of corporate environments, people are maybe feeling a lot of empathy, maybe really wanting to enact change and feeling helpless. Mm -hmm. And so then employee engagement drops. Of course. Yeah. And that, that was a big correlation for me in the research of, um, you know, so much about the, and I'm sure you know this through your research, so much of the employee engagement um, problem or challenge is around, do people feel heard? Do people Mm -hmm. feel like they can make a difference? Do they feel like people understand them in the workplace? Do they feel like their opinion is valued? And so much of that is wrapped up in in an empathetic interaction. So, um, you know, while, while I've cited a lot of studies around employee engagement, some of them do talk about, well, what increases employee engagement are environments that are empathetic, things like that. But not all of them talk about empathy. And for me, one of the biggest things you find is this idea of harnessing the power of diversity Mm -hmm. in an organization and reaping the benefits of that. And I don't feel like you can have, you can reap those benefits without empathy because otherwise you just have a lot of diverse people staring at each other across the table, (laughs) not understanding each other. So it's great if you've got the representation, but to Mm -hmm. really get the employee engagement 
do they all understand each other? Can they all collaborate effectively? Can they all communicate effectively? And that starts with empathy. Mm -hmm. You used a term in the book, um, cognitive diversity, which I thought was really very appropriate to this. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that with our cultures now where we may see, you know, Gen, Gen X, Gen Z, millennials, boomers, all working in the same place, all from different worlds. How do we bring that together? How do we bring that culture together? Well, that was fascinating. And I think that if we can, you know, there, there's so many other books that really dig in and explore that topic, but I couldn't write a book about empathy in the workplace without addressing generational differences. And some of my research um, found, for example, a Deloitte study that talked about the fact that Gen Z and millennials, I guess I should say that backwards, millennials and the generation coming up behind them, Gen Z, mm -hmm. are among the most diverse generations that are going to be in the workforce. I think only 57 or 59% of them are Caucasian and a huge percentage of them come from immigrant backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And this is the world they've grown up in. And again, I didn't dig in, I didn't go down that rabbit hole too much, but a lot of it could stem from the ubiquity of social media, of their ability to have knowledge of global events in an instant. They're just used to that environment of knowing what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. And so um, to them, diversity is, again, for our generation, we sort of started the conversation in Gen X and baby boomers of diversity as representation. So let's get everybody to the table. What I love about the generations coming up that make me so hopeful is they're pushing the envelope further and saying, again, like I was saying before, it doesn't matter that all those people are there. How are you developing their talents? How are you accepting their different points of view? How are you leveraging their different experiences? And here's the kicker, for a business outcome, mm -hmm. not just because it's ethical or moral or it feels good or it's the right thing to do, but they are also equating it to well, this is how you move. This is how you make better decisions. This is how you move a business forward. And I love that they're tying it back to results. They're not just sort of clamoring for it just because we should. Mm. Um, and sometimes that's what you need. Like again, with the book for the skeptics to get on board. And if they get on board from wherever they are, then to me, that's progress. So how much of that do you think this these new generations new upcoming generations are bringing to the table that you know maybe us boomers always wanted to actually have empathy in the office but it wasn't something that was corporately accessible so how far does that go back that empathy started being a recognized skill when we talk about conscious businesses for example that's mm -hmm. a relatively new concept although mm -hmm not as new as some people think it is. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, the interesting thing is I think I was at a, on a panel last week and one of the panelists said this great line, which is sort of results speak for themselves. And I think what's happening is we've started to dissect what's making people successful. Mm -hmm. And we're finding that, oh, by the way, it's not really just the smartest person in the room or the most technical skills. Google did a study of their most um, inventive and the most innovative and productive projects over the years and found that they didn't come from the teams with the highest quote unquote talent. They came from the teams with the best soft skills, the best mm -hmm. collaboration, more empathy, more communication. So I think we're starting to see more and more proof points around, Hey, now that we're dissecting what these things are, we're realizing it's not what we thought it was that, that is the secret sauce. Um, 
and I think what's great about the, the younger generations, which, you know, I can say that now, is they're making demands of the workplace that I think we always wanted to, but weren't brave enough to, or mm -hmm. we didn't even think it had a place, right? So I, I got into management consulting in the, in the early 90s, and they thought they were wildly progressive because, you know, women didn't have to wear black or blue suits. They could wear red suits. I mean, that, that's where we were back then. Mm -hmm. And so I love that they're pushing that and, 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 and demanding this in a workplace environment. So they will give their best work. They will be loyal. They will work long hours. They will provide inventive ideas if, and only if these conditions are met. And mm -hmm. so what you're going to see is this race to attract top talent because you have to have that kind of workplace and it's no longer actually going to be a competitive advantage to have that kind of workplace. According to my research, I spoke with a lot of generational experts. Erica Dewan is one of them who you should definitely speak to. Mm -hmm. And um, they talked about the fact that this is just, this is table stakes now. This isn't, you no longer can tout that you have an empathy. You, you may no longer be able to tout that you have an empathetic environment as what makes you better than your competitor. Now it's sort of like, well, that's, that's the ante to get in the game for these younger generations. And I think there's a percentage in one of the studies I saw that 71% of millennials want to have a work environment that feels like a second family. Mm -hmm. I never looked for a work environment when I was right out of college in my, you know, in my twenties, that was not criteria. I mean, I, I wanted to work with people that were fun. I wanted to work with people that I enjoyed but I never went into an interview sort of demanding that, you know, what's the culture <laughs> like here? And, you know, will I fit in? And is that, yeah. is that you know, will people have my back? I didn't even think to ask that. So for, for me, I'm, I'm hopeful about that because mm -hmm. they're changing the conversation. So let's say that we are a quote unquote stodgy old company that basically <laughs> has no empathy at all for our employees. And we mm -hmm. just want them to do their job and shut up. Mm -hmm. How are we going to turn that around so that the culture can evolve? And probably there are plenty of people in the company who would like to evolve it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as you mentioned in the book, doing these big, we're going to train everybody how to be empathic, <laughs> ain't working, never did. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? Well, I think that's where it has to start from an individual level. It has to be a grassroots effort. And if your mm -hmm. company, if the leadership is not bringing this to the table, then we all have to remember we, we each have our own spheres of influence. And again, results speak for themselves. So if you become the model within your dysfunctional team or within your dysfunctional department <laughs> of how to get things done and you perform and you succeed, people notice they're going to look and you can then tell them, this is how I got this done. Mm -hmm. I, I made sure our team was collaborating better than it ever had. I made sure that I was talking to each individual about mo what motivated them so that they felt heard. So at whatever, that's what I love at whatever level in the organization you are, you can be that model. Mm -hmm. And it starts with a lot of the things you teach, for example, around just getting your own house in order as an individual, because none of this works. If you're in disarray, you just don't have the space. You, there's too much ego. There's too much doubt. There's too much lack of confidence for you to be able to have a clear mind enough to take the perspective of someone else. Mm -hmm. And that's why my very first habit and trait in the book of the very first section on leadership, which is really the individual, but it's guised as leadership, is practice presence. 
-hmm. because when we don't take that step back and I'm guilty of this, I'm Italian and a redhead, like I'm guilty of this. (laughs) Um, But you know, it's being able to take that step back, not take everything personally, sort of be an objective observer, take a breath and, and then free up that space and that energy to take on the perspective of another, to even be curious enough to ask the questions rather than defensive in protecting your own position. It's got to start there. And as, mm-hmm. as those individuals, I feel like it's a ripple effect, as those individuals advance through the organization and leadership ranks will start to hopefully phase out <laughs> and, and start to um, normalize that as successful behavior versus what we've seen so far in the workplace. That's my, I, grand, that's my grand vision. <laughs> I love that you're saying that because when, you know, I do some corporate coaching and I go into companies and they're like, well, you know, if the leadership doesn't buy into this, it's not going to work. And in some cases that's true, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be a leader who starts the trend. No, it doesn't at all. And you know, that's what I love about this book and other books like it that are equally valuable where it's, we're just starting the conversation. And that's why, you know, I'm, I'm getting great response of, those bright lights within the organization who are like, mm-hmm. Hey, will you come in and speak to, to this little affinity group within my organization? Or we do these lunch, we have luncheon speakers. Will you come in and speak about this? And it's, and again, it's like a very grassroots effort. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get the larger hits coming from the top where you look at like the cover of fortune magazine, where they had the leaders, the CEOs from the business roundtable talking about the importance of, of purpose and profit. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of happening from both directions and you almost want to squeeze out the skeptics <laughs> from both ends. <laughs> well, and as you said, if, if they see success, mm-hmm. then the skeptics are going to turn around, right. but they have to see repeated examples of that. Totally. And you know, the important thing about that is the other kind of pushback I get to that is, well, if they're just faking it, are they really empathetic? And I look at it as, you know, it, to me, it's binary, you know, you're either pregnant or you're not, right? Mm-hmm. So if you act empathetically or put an empathetic policy into action for whatever reason got you there, you've done it. Like it's done, it's, mm-hmm. it's there. And what I've seen in my career, and I share some anecdotes in the book, I've seen that actually transform leaders from the outside in. And once they get a taste for it, their feedback from the world changes. And psychologists have said with their work with autistic children, for example, that even when you have an autistic, a severely autistic child go through the rote checklists and motions of, of, social, of being in social settings, like mm-hmm. make sure you're making eye contact this many times, da, 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 da. They're initially not doing it for the right reasons. They're doing it because someone told them to do it. But what happens is that feedback loop changes and the plasticity of the brain changes and it actually rewires their brain or changes their brain chemistry. I'm not a doctor, so I can't remember what the exact words were, but it does. Like that, mm-hmm. that behavior can change and they want more of it. It's almost like a drug. Like, oh, I want to feel that way again. I want to have that, that positive interaction again. And so I'm hoping that even if people ride this wave because I want you know, to make more revenue for my company or I want it to be valued higher or whatever reason, they're still going to be doing it. Mm-hmm. So I just, I want to just get them there. We just want them to feel good. Yeah. Like try it, try it. See if you like it, see how it feels. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, getting those neurons to fire together and and realizing that, oh, when I do this, I get this and it Mm -hmm. feels good. And you repeat that 
-hmm. it, it really is a very powerful tool. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is. And I think that also that's where sort of my, my loftier goal of changing the world is because we spend the bulk of our time in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And if we can't master empathy in the workplace, do we think it's just going to magically happen in the like three or four hours that we're outside of work every day and we're all of a sudden beginning to become a different human being? And, and so if we master it there, there's spillover effect. Mm. You, if you are an empathetic leader and you create an empathetic culture, you create happier, more productive, more thriving employees, they go home to families and to communities in, in a certain frame of mind. And so I feel like it's a cycle that if you can build that and, and remove the toxicity from the work environment, you're creating people that then go out into their lives and can act with more compassion and with more empathy. Yeah, which certainly benefits us in so many ways as parents, as community members, mm -hmm. you know, being able to come home from work in a less um, aggro kind of mood. Yes, you know? exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And like I said earlier, like the more we can normalize that success, we, we start to make those who are not leading this way, the minority, mm -hmm. okay. but you know, reverse peer pressure. What is it on them to, to act, to act better? I, I mean, I hate using the terms right and wrong, but to just act in a different way, because now we're, we're normalizing this behavior instead of that behavior. Mm -hmm. And just to bring more kindness into their lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about how empathy is a business advantage as far as putting two corporations together. Um, I think in the book you use the example of Microsoft and Apple and how those, that, hmm, that combative attitude that they had kind of changed a little bit over the years. Well, I think, I think well, one, one point on that is we want to make sure we don't say that empathy and com competitiveness are mutually exclusive because you right. can be compassionately competitive and it's healthy for the market in the way it exists today for there to be healthy competition between two companies. Mm -hmm. I think more what that's about is this idea of um, the, the shift at Microsoft, for example, with the culture. And they were successful for a long time, but they got very stagnant. My husband worked there for several years and was, was part of the culture that was not so great. It was, it beat people down. It was anything but empathetic. Mm. Changed, reorgs happened every six months. People didn't know what, what they were doing, what they were responsible for, where they were going. The bureaucracy was ridiculous. I, I did one consulting gig at Microsoft during that time and was like, I'm done. I'm never, <laughs> never doing this again. <laughs> never again. But, then, but then Satya Nadella came in and he, very strongly had a leadership principle of leading with empathy. Mm -hmm. He's written a lot about it. And little by little, he has changed the culture to now to the point where I talk to people who did work there with my husband and are still there and said, it's a different place. Mm -hmm. Like it's different to come to work. It doesn't drive, it doesn't grind you down. It, it feels like they have our backs. The leaders here that are acting in this way are promoted and rewarded. That's what I mean by sort of operationalizing empathy. And of course, it helps when the CEO is presenting a great model of this is how we're going to work. And because of his leadership, the company's innovating more, its stock price is up, its products are doing better. So it's, it's that knock-on effect of creating that environment where innovation can flourish. Mm -hmm. And it's because, it, it's because of somebody leading with empathy. Mm -hmm. 
talk a little bit more about how empathy really helps creativity grow. Well, my theory on this, so a lot of the research shows that, you know, oh, like I was mentioning the Google study, for example, some of their most inventive and productive products and projects came out of teams that were big on empathy. And, but there's sort of a, there's sort of a missing piece of like, well, how exactly does that make that happen? And in looking through the research, here's my theory. When you have an empathetic environment and you feel seen, heard, and understood as an employee, you feel you can bring your authentic self to work with all its warts. The team has your back. You are not worried about someone, you know, ruling by fear. You're not looking over your shoulder. You're not preoccupied with all the drama that detracts us from being our most inventive and creative. You can actually free up your mind space and your emotional space and energy to invent, to create because it's a safe environment. That's actually one of the practices and habits of an empathetic culture is creating an environment of trust. And in my view, when you have that environment of trust, it enables people to just relax and mm -hmm. let their guard down. And again, free up that mental energy that's usually spent on the fear and the angst and the anxiety and what have you on, wow, you can actually focus it on the work you're here to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think any of us could speak to the fact that when we're stressed, we're not our most creative, we're not our most productive, we're not our, our best selves, even though I hate that term. But, um, and so it stands to reason if you're in an environment like that every day, I, I did some events last week and I opened it with a question of, have any of you worked in a toxic work environment or for a toxic manager? And of course, everybody raised their hand, right? Sure. Including me. And I said, so when you think back on that experience, how many of you did your best work in that environment? And nobody raised their hands. And then I said, so what do you think the impact to the bottom line of the business was that you weren't bringing your best self to work every day, that you weren't doing your best work? Mm -hmm. And it was sort of like this, oh, like they'd finally connected <laughs> the dots, right? And yeah. so- um, you know, can you have an environment that's horrific and oppressive and non-empathetic and be successful? Unfortunately, we've seen examples of that, mm -hmm. but I don't think that's sustainable. And I, I think the, the biggest thing you deal with is a loss of top talent, because if you're constantly dealing with turnover and churn and burning people out, you know, that's a lot of money you're spending on hiring and recruiting and retraining and uh, and pretty soon that's the reputation you get as an employer. And then the best people don't want to come work for you. Mm -hmm. And now because the demographics are changing a bit, it's going to be less and less acceptable. To for sure. For sure. Totally agree. Yeah. So I know that branding is your thing. Let's talk a little bit about empathic brands. Who is really representative of that kind of management style? Well, I have a few examples in the book, both big companies and small solopreneur companies. But um, one big example I, I highlight in the book is REI, the um, sports equipment retailer. And um, they have done a lot in terms of not only being empathetic with their members, that's what they call their, their customers who come mm -hmm. into the co-op, um, and being very aligned with their customers on what their mission and vision is, because they know their customers so well. And they make, you know, product decisions, they make policy decisions. And one of the biggest successes they had was creating the opt outside campaign, which if you may recall was the hashtag opt outside, 
where they closed all their stores on Black Friday, the biggest shopping day of the year. They made a decision to close their stores because number one, it actually, interestingly enough, came up through an employee meeting that the employees were talking about what the holidays meant to them. And they, one person kind of blurted out, well, what if we closed on Black Friday? And they said, but we could never do that. And the leadership said, I don't know, can we? Mm. And all of a sudden, because that company was so aligned on their mission and vision internally, they got no pushback. They were like, okay, this is going to be a big risk. They ended up reaping so many rewards from that. Just the loyalty of their members, the happiness of their employees, the press they got from it, you know, (laughs) I mean, on, on all vectors. And it was because they were just trying to do something different and do the right thing and say, what are we doing here? We're like feeding into this commercialism and keeping people in a mall for all day on a, on what could be a lovely Friday they could be spending with their families. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's a great example. Airbnb is a great example of a company both, both internally and externally um, with a very singular mission of helping people belong and what that means to their employees and what that means to their, their guests and their hosts. Um, and have put a variety of processes and accountability structures and reward structures in place to, to walk their talk. That's what I mean. It's the, not just the, we're empathetic on a poster on the wall. Right. And I don't think they would even call it empathetic. They probably call it something else, but, Mm -hmm. but they are hiring based on that. They are doing performance evaluations based on that. They have policies put in place to protect their hosts and their guests based on that. So they have put it into practice. That's great. That's great. It's really great to see that, you know, this is happening. And I think one of the things that people are really going to find from the book is how many places it's happening where you might not expect it. And in my particular instance, what you wrote about Microsoft kind of blew me away because I'm an Apple person. So Microsoft Uh is the evil empire. Uh They couldn't possibly do anything right. I know. And I'm an Apple person now. So (laughs) So it's interesting how we bring our bias to how we deal with companies. Absolutely. And, you know, the interesting thing about Apple is, you know, Steve Jobs has a certain reputation as a very mercurial leader, which he was. But, you know, in doing research and talking with people that worked with him, he was actually highly empathetic with his customers. He would read every email. He was all about getting to know them and what they wanted and what they needed and what they aspired to so that he could provide products for them before they even knew they needed it. Mm-hmm. I mean, when he, you know, when he came out with the iPod, who knew they needed, you know, MP3s? Like no one actually verbalized that, right? right. But he was like, but here's the problem they have. I understand the pain point mm-hmm. and I understand the desire and therefore this is, this is where we're going to go. And so, yeah, could he have used some improvement on the empathy front internally? Probably. <laughs> but, but he was, you know, when people said, well, he wasn't empathetic and look how successful he was. It's like, well, actually he was quite empathetic with his customer base. Mm-hmm. He just chose who he was going to have. He just for. chose who he was. empathetic. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it was smart. And, and you know, and maybe, maybe part of that is to the detriment of his employees. Mm-hmm. He was so passionate about the customer's experience that it often led to him not being very kind to, to internal people who who, who he felt didn't have the customer's interests at heart and Mm -hmm. weren't performing to their best ability for the customer. So you could look at it, not, you know, if I was a pop psychologist, that's how I would, (laughs) that's how I would read that situation. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always interesting to kind of look at some of these companies and some of the ways things are being done from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And I, I really enjoyed that. I, I really enjoyed the book. It was a great read. Thank you. I appreciate lots that. Of, lots of depth. So. And I, it was important to me to make it actionable as well, because there's enough mm-hmm. books written about the theory of empathy. I used a lot of them in my research, but I wanted to make this very like a playbook as I have in the subtitle of what, what can people do? Where can they start? And you know, one thing I want to be clear is I've got you know, habits and traits for leaders, habits and traits for cultures, habits and traits for brands. You don't have to look at that and go, I have to try all of those tomorrow. <laughs> pick your poison, right? Pick, pick where you want to start and try some out. See how they feel, see how they change the interaction, change the results that you get. Yeah, bringing curiosity into how we work and how we represent mm-hmm. is, is really important. It's huge. It's one of the biggest traits of highly empathetic people. So, um, yeah. So yeah. You, you've got a five-year-old like me who's constantly asking questions. It's like, that's a good <laughs> sign, I guess. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Why? What? Yeah, I remember those days. (laughs) Well, Maria, it's really been great to have you on the show. And and I would love you to just let people know how they can find you, where they can get the book, obviously, which will be released very, very soon. Very soon. Yes. Um, So if they want to find out about me, they can go to red-slice.com. And to find the book there, they can click on books, or they can go straight to TheEmpathyEdge.com, and there's all the info they need. It's found in all the usual suspects, Amazon, BN.com, all those great places. Um, I can also be found on Instagram at Red Slice Maria, and on Twitter at Red Slice, and on Facebook at Red Slice. So, you know, would love to get feedback and, and continue the conversation there. Cool. I'm sure they will. And uh, I really look forward to seeing this book take off because it's really, it's very exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to Mindful Social. I hope you enjoyed the show and I would love to hear your feedback. Send me an email to Janet at JanetFouts.com or visit my blog at JanetFouts.com for more shows just like this one. Please don't forget to subscribe and share it with your friends.